Welcome to Career in Ruins, where we've been locked down for 11 weeks and we've run out of things to say. How are we doing? Welcome to the Career in Ruins podcast with me, Lawrence Short, and... And me, Derek Pittman. It's lovely to be back again. It is. How you been? You right? Yeah, not too bad. Been enjoying the lovely weather we've been having up until today, I must say. Um, getting out and about, doing a bit of swimming, a bit of running, a bit of cycling. It's been been pretty nice. How about you? Lovely. Yeah, very much the same. I've had two weeks off, so I've been trying to do a bit of writing on the old PhD, but also uh, getting distracted with DIY and just generally having a nice time on paddle boards or running, etc. But so, uh, at, at what point on your in this PhD writing process did you install the hot tub? <laughs> That was pre-PhD writing process of this second phase. <laughs> okay, okay, so that, that was, that's fair enough. Then. Is that, this could be a new time period, so rather than BC and a, uh, AD, it could be BHT and AHT. <laughs> it's, a, it's a real geological shift. You Finally, can, we've got a new epoch. We can study the quality, the quality of my writing. <laughs> anyway, but um, yeah, another another week or a couple of weeks and uh, another podcast. And uh, this week, uh, we're going back to a format that we've done once before. Um, and that was with Andy Brown, Indy. Um, from New Zealand, but we're actually joined by a third person this week. We've got Dr. Stu Eaves, who's, who's there. How are you doing, Stu? All right? Yeah, not too bad. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Um, we know you're an avid listener and a regular fan, so uh, we appreciate that extra figure that hit that we get each week. Yep, absolutely. Yes. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> Into double figures this week, right? It is very noticeable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, I think um, rather than doing a normal st- um, sort of the general guff that Derek, Derek and I do, and then the structured interview, and then more general guff, we're just going to have one big. Um, Stream of general <laughs> with their uh, sort of intermittently adding some some quality for us. So, um, so today we're gonna have a quick chat about things that caught our attention. Uh, we're also then going to talk about um, we're going to do a Dominic Cummings inspired monutramps, um, and then we're just going to talk to Stu about his career in ruins. So, how's that sound, guys? Cool, cool. Excellent. So, um, yeah, starting off with Stu as, as, as a visitor and a new, new participant on the podcast, anything caught your attention this week? Anything you thought that's, that's particularly interesting? Or Well, this week, this week um, I've been trying to keep my head down a bit, actually, because I, I got a bit addicted to Twitter last week. And so I've, I've turned it off now because uh, I, I don't know if you guys find that, but suddenly you get drowned in it and have to keep checking it the whole time. So... I've tried to turn it off and not really look at Twitter, at least. I I'm not on Facebook either. But what I do know is that um, the uh, centenary of the, um, or the anniversary, I should say, of the Battle of Waterloo is happening on the 18th of June, uh, which is, what, next week or something. Uh, and there's quite a few events going on. So <clears throat> one of the projects that I work on is called Waterloo Uncovered. And we go out and excavate at the battlefield of Waterloo every year. But of course, this year we're not allowed to because no one's allowed to go and do any field work. So there's quite a lot of events going on. So I've been looking at and preparing some lectures for that. Um, but also there's um, quite a few people who are doing like remembrance events and that kind of thing. Uh, so I've been kind of going through some of that, recording some readings for those as well. And then looking at all of the other content that 
people are producing uh, for the middle of June. Very exciting, as you can imagine. That sounds, yeah, well, it's, it's important and very interesting. Where, what what would be the best sources for people to visit um, if they want to find out any more about that? Well, if you want to find out about the project, that's uh, waterlooncovered.com. There's loads of information on there. Um, and then there's also this chap from um, Southampton University. He's a PhD student called Zach White, who's producing a whole bunch of events um, starting quite soon, actually. Uh, but you want to look up Waterloo Remembered. Zach White and uh, there's a whole he's doing a whole load of different podcasts sorry to advertise other podcasts on your podcast um, That's fine. and That's fine. and a lot of readings and he's been doing a lot of interviews with um, historians and then us as archaeologists as well to, to learn a bit more about the battle excellent that's a really good good thing to review this week thank you for that um, Desa what, what, what about yourself uh, I, I, I've had my, my head in the stars this week, I must admit. Um, and I, I know like, like you, we're, we're both quite keen on thinking about space things and sci-fi things and various, um, various futurey type things. But of course we've had a rocket launch this week and America, USA has returned to the, um, manned space program, um, through the, through the Dragon 2 rocket launch that happened this week. And it got me thinking a lot about space and particularly technology and its kind of changing relationship with the, I guess, wider sociological and wider economic environments, if you will. Um, cause obviously one of the most exciting and interesting things about this space launch was it was done in partnership with commercial industry rather than government-led. But of course, if you look at the long-term kind of historical trajectory of the space program, it's got its roots in a particularly murky past in and around um, Second World War or German rocket technology. So the the kind of the the, the surrounding context through which the innovation and the technology that's driven the space program has changed considerably over the years since sort of those earliest inceptions of rocket technology. And it just got me thinking about the kind of long-term historical trajectories of technologies and how they can be the product of multiple systems, I guess. And it, it's just, yeah, just got me pondering. I think that's it. Oh, sorry, Lawrence. No, no, you go, Stu, you go, go. I was just going to say, I thought, I thought that there was a really, from that perspective, you have this incredibly expensive rocket, which has launched, you know, due to the multi-billion pounds of this one bloke, basically. And that is flying at exactly the same time as there's a whole bunch of riots essentially caused by huge inequality in America. And I think that's quite a nice juxtaposition when dealing with, you know, sociological impacts of technology and that kind of thing. I think you're right. If you take, and it's, it's, I guess, all of our responsibilities as archaeologists to, to consider this, but if you take kind of the modern context, particularly in the USA, as an example of, uh, I guess, a mixed economy of values, identities, privilege, and start to think about the past in similar terms. Think about the inequalities that we we talk about in archaeology through kind of social complexity, hierarchies, things like that. But I don't think we ever get the resolution, or we ever talk about it in the resolution that we're seeing happening in the world today. And it's it's that kind of yeah that that juxtaposition, that contrast is quite interesting to think about from the kind of the long term 
perspectives that we as archaeologists have. No, I think that's a really good good point you both make, and um, it is is really important to to consider the current position and 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 how also the part, things like this have affected things in the past. Um, the other thing with regards to archaeology and space is is I know there are other people out there that are looking at the archaeology of the space race and of space in general so there are people that are looking to schedule for example the moon landings um, sites and uh, other aspects of recording and mapping um, even aspects of the British space race as so there's the um, British space site um, up in the Midlands and um, yeah there are a lot number of different interesting tangents tangents of space and archaeology and history intertwining one of which i'll be coming back to in my uh, monument trumps a bit later i think a, an element of that's quite interesting in that we again just just kind of from watching the news and watching the the, the live streams and stuff this week uh, another novel aspect of of the spacex program is the the reuse of the rocket or reuse of components of the rocket and that sudden appearance of recycling in a process that before didn't have it and that's something again we see in archaeology where materials would be used and discarded used and discarded and yet at some point recycling enters the the system and it's 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 these technological systems playing out around us i find quite exciting to follow hmm. Hmm. No, nice nice thing to bring to the floor this week Desna. So how about you, Pat? What have you been thinking about? So this week, I received my copy of The Archaeologist, issue 110, summer 2020, the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists. <laughs> um, and uh, it's it's quite an interesting issue. And there's a lot of um, things around digital archives, open data, um, unexpected legacies. Uh, and um, there's quite a big section in there from Dig Ventures, um, people like Brendan Wilkin, uh, Wilkins, etc. Um, but there's one bit that caught my eye, um, which is a new app that has been released um, to inform learning about the Bronze Age by gaming. And it's targeting small kids um, predominantly, but also there's also a picture of a full-grown adult, adult using it, it, it as well. Um, and it, it's called Bronzeon. Bronzion, B-R-O-N-Z-E-O-N. Um, I don't know how you bronze pronounce it. Bronze on? Bronze on? Get your bronze on. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like you're going I mean, to It does sound like something on Ashley Road in Paul. <laughs> Donald Trump's got shares in that. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, it, I, um, yeah, I had a download. It's pretty interesting. It's pretty engaging. And um, I just, it, it's one of the first things I've seen like this, which sort of utilised archaeology, um, theories and um, best practice that I research to develop a, a learning sort of zone that perhaps encourages kids and people that aren't trained archaeologists to understand how societies in the Bronze Age lived and how they what they would have to do in terms of location, locating settlements, clearance work, animal husbandry, all these other bits and bobs. And um, yeah, it's a re- really interesting little piece. So I'd recommend people checking it out. Are you sure you didn't just fall asleep and have a dream when you were playing Civilization? <laughs> no, no, I didn't. <laughs> no, this, this, this game doesn't hurt my mind as much as playing Civilization. <laughs> well, I don't know if you guys have come across any good digital resources, like, like particularly for younger people. Uh, I have recently, actually. I'm going to jump in because it got me 
quite intrigued by the whole process. And um, uh, we've mentioned it before, actually. I had a, an undergrad student a while back looking at games in, sorry, archaeology in games rather than using gaming for archaeology and how um, how faithful or indeed unfaithful games can be to archaeology. And I downloaded the Discovery version of Assassin's Creed, the, the Greek one, Odyssey, uh, a couple of weeks ago. It took about four days to download because it's huge and my internet's dreadful. Um, but I, I I was instantly blown away, not necessarily by any accuracy, but the the vibrancy and lushness of the environment you're in compared to um, certainly from a, a few years back. I remember going to a digital archaeology conference and seeing some some second life stuff and some early kind of archaeological adoptions of 3D, and it it didn't have that kind of HBO richness which assassin's creed seems to have and it, it kind of it took me aback playing it but the thing the thing that made it really interesting was how my my daughter took to it um because she instantly wanted to have a go she had no interest in fighting or battling she just wanted to wander around and explore and see what she could see and, and interact with the characters but she was particularly taken that she could play as a female character um rather than i, I guess what is with a few notable exceptions, Tomb Raider, for example, um, what is overwhelmingly a kind of a male sphere in terms of video games. Um, and having that option gave it, it seemed to make it much more accessible to someone who's about seven or eight and wants to see themselves reflected in that world. And it was quite interesting to see. Yeah, she's an extremely strong female character as well, isn't she? I mean, she's definitely the yeah. prot uh, protagonist and everything. You know, she's she's as strong as the male character, which is also quite unusual. Normally the female characters are are put in these games and they, they have a different skill set because, of course, women have a different skill set. So you have to play them in a different way. But, you know, with... What's her name? Cassandra. With Cassandra, you can play her in, in mm. either way you want to. And I, presumably it's the same with the, with the male character as well. You can, you can play him however you want to play him, a kind of role-play game rather than necessarily being led down a particular path just governed by the, by the sex of your character, basically, gender of your character. Yeah, it, it, it was... It was Good to see. And she was one thing she was particularly taken by was the fact that um, in her kind of character bio, it described her as a pirate. Um, a pirate, a girl, a pirate. Wow, that's amazing. And it just it, it it's so easy for a game or a system to do that. It would be amazing if it was done more. I think. Yeah. No. It's uh, there's a lot of good things like that out there, and that, that's sort of why I wanted to bring up this app and sort of test the water there with what you guys have done. Because one thing I'm aware is we haven't actually done a proper introduction for Stu yet, mm. and we'll do that in a bit. But it, I, I think we'll touch on a few bits of these hopefully with Stu later <laughs> with regards to um, the role of technology at developing technologies such as VR and. Um, maybe AR and Dead Man's Nose and sort of sensory archaeology and things like that. So um, these are relevant subjects to hopefully what Stu's going to talk to us about a bit later. Are you trying to suggest that we've planned this? <laughs> no. <laughs> All the bits that have been cut out, Stu's sitting there going, they definitely haven't planned this. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> anyway, enough of that, Gubbins. It's time for this. Like in heritage, you crave for somewhere different than Stonehenge. Stonehenge. In a world where everyone goes to regularly visit heritage sites, 
Only one game can change your mind into what you might be interested in. Mom, you <laughs> How do you like the, the uh, jingle, Stu? One of our finest productions, I think. Yeah, I, I think that's excellent. You are going to put the real jingle on, right? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> oh, that is the real jingle. Sorry, I would have joined in. <laughs> what, I, what I'm enjoying about this episode is Stu gets a direct insight into the moments where, obviously, we we put in the jingles afterwards in post-production, but Lawrence and I do insist on singing them every time we get to one. <laughs> God help us. <laughs> oh so um guests first i guess well well should we, I, I should say um before well the one bit we're planning we have done for this podcast is that i did email you both yesterday evening <laughs> or whatsapp you both yesterday <laughs> evening saying that let's do a dominic cummings inspired monu trumps so the rules are it has to be a site within half an hour's drive of your house um a heritage site or archaeological site um that will allow you to test your vision to make sure it's safe for you to drive i mean it's really important to point out actually because not all of us live in durham so it'd be nice to have places to test our eyesight yeah spread more geographically around (laughs) the other thing i should say is that i then also realized that i live in between you guys probably half an hour either way (laughs) so um with uh Stu in the new forest me and paul and derek in the the perbex so um (laughs) i was half tempted to choose corf castle but I didn't. But um, <laughs> yeah, I was a bit worried we might all choose the same site and then we would be breaking the social distancing rules. But we'll, we'll get to that bridge if and when we get to it. But as you say, Derek, we should have guests first. As Stu, yeah. um, what, what is your Monutrump? Monutrump. Monutrump. Uh, my uh, my Monutrump is, it might be a bit of a cheat because it might be slightly outside the half an hour limit. But actually seeing as I think, Dominic Cummings may well have driven for a slightly longer than half an hour. We might be okay. And it is a castle and it is very close to my parents' house. So I think it might fit with all of that. So I've chosen Arundel Castle, which is an incredible castle. Um, Was founded in 1067 after the the Norman conquest. and then was made into stone in 1138. And it's a, it's a really cool castle because it's, it's a mott and double bailey, um, which is exactly the same as Windsor Castle. In fact, it gets used quite a lot in films to represent Windsor Castle. So there's the big mott in the middle and then there's, then there's uh, other buildings on either side. Uh, it's extremely accessible, um, has a couple of car parks and it even has a great big lake that you can go and sit by uh, in case your four-year-old needs to go to the toilet. <laughs> or you're not feeling particularly well. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it is it is slightly further from where I live than, than half an hour. Um, but I actually, I, I grew up in Arundel um, and my parents still live there. And I was a tour guide around Arundel Castle when I was 18. So it was one of my first kind of introductions to um, to archaeology. So I thought I'd stick it in as my monutrump and uh, see what you guys think. That's great. I grew up in Worthing just down the road, so I had many a weekend visit to Arundel to play uh, pitch and putt or walk around. Is it Swanbourne Lake? <laughs> Swanbourne Lake. <laughs> the uh, the Black Rabbit for some lunch. So, yeah. Lovely bluebells this time of year as well. Yeah, well, which are essential for the Dominic Cummings uh, when you trump special. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that's good. Well, I mean, going on the Bluebell theme, I'd like to carry on then, if that's all right, and the built heritage. Um, so my monument Trump is Kingston Lacey. So if I were to travel directly half an hour north of uh, where I live, I'd get to Wimborne and go a bit further, and I'll get to Kingston Lacey, which is a large house which was lived in by the Banks family, who once ha- inhabited the Corfe Castle, uh, just up the road from you, Derek, um, mm-hmm. prior to it being demolished in the civil war, civil war. Um, but the house was built between 1663 and 1665 by Ralph Banks and it is a um, it's a Venetian palace style structure and they've got beautiful gardens um, it's a lovely beautiful house they've got one of the largest collections of um, Egyptian artifacts there so if you like to see um, artifacts that probably shouldn't be where they are and should probably be sent back to their country, <laughs> then then that's, that's the place to go. Um, or, or if you just like relics, like a lot of the conservative... Uh, so no, stop changing that subject. They have bluebell woods, as I mentioned. Um, <laughs> uh, and in the, on the theme of space and archaeology, they also have an Egyptian obelisk there, um, which is called Philae. And this has a tenuous link to the do you remember back in 2004 when they sent a probe to a comet i do yeah so uh, they sent that probe and um the the probe that landed was called the rosetta um probe because um based on the rosetta stone in the museum um, british museum which has got three different types of languages carved into it and helps uh, with the um help with the sort of code cracking of hieroglyphs and things like that um but the philae obelisk at um at kingston lacy uh, is this it has this it has the three different um scripts on them as well so i, I believe it's uh, arabic egyptian um hieroglyphs and I want to say Latin. I should have done my research. It has ancient Greek on it as well. Ancient Greek, that's it, yeah. Thanks, Derek. Um, that's all right. <laughs> and um, the the actual um, rocket that sent that that uh, lander to the comet was called Philae after that that um, obelisk. So a nice bit of space archaeology there as well. You've brought us back around to the space thing. Yeah, that's, that's it. That's quite, and, quite um, impressive. And there is, just down the road, if you want to see a castle, there is um, Badbury Rings as well, which is a hill fort. So I, I class that as a castle. See, I'm going to just leap in there because that segues perfectly into my own uh, Dominic Cummings themed Trump of Maiden Castle, which is uh, about half an hour away. It's it's another Iron Age hill fort. And as it is a Wednesday when we're recording this, a hill fort's Wednesday, um, it, I thought I'd, I'd choose that one. And it's 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 for me, it's one of my favourite archaeological sites in that, um, like you guys, um, I... I it was a site I went to an awful lot as a kid. Um, I remember not having much of an awareness of what it was, other than the fact that it's got these enormous great ramparts that I can't even comprehend a human being digging without a machine or a digger. Um, it also fits in one of my favourite time periods as well. Um, and the best thing about it from a from a Dominic Cummings-themed Monutrump perspective is there's loads of schools, hospitals, uh, parks along the way, so it's perfect for testing your eyesight while driving. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you pulled out Maiden Castle. Surely that's not fair. That's the coolest monument ever. 
Yeah, I know, and it and it has the real benefit of if you look at it in plan, it looks a bit um, phallic. <laughs> <laughs> does it? Does it have the leading duke in the country living there? Um, not actively. No, no. Well, Arundel Castle does. Oh, Marshal of England. She lives in the castle. Amazing. <laughs> what's What's your definition of leading? He's <laughs> the He's the premier. He's the first duke. I mean, oh, he's I in see, charge of the dukes. The Duke. Yeah. The Duke of Dukes. He's the Duke of Dukes. He's probably more alive than anyone that's living at Maiden Castle. That didn't make any sense. I'm going to retract <laughs> that statement. Can we cut that one? I don't know. Um, Maiden Castle has sheep. It has lots of sheep. <laughs> I should say, Kingston Lacey is a National Trust property, so uh, it's worth checking whether it's actually open or not. <laughs> i was gonna say we've lunged into a monutrumps without even thinking about social distancing and and all that haven't we it's fully inspired by dominic yeah well, that was good well done everybody on a very short notice i think that was a successful so, monutrumps but who won lawrence um call it a draw call it a draw, draw. all right <laughs> Oh, lovely. So should we get on to uh, hearing a little bit about our guest? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Um, so, Stu, you're, a, um, you're currently a postdoctoral researcher at Bournemouth University, is that correct? I, I like that you emphasised currently there as if I'm about to fire. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I have that power. You don't have carry that on. power. <laughs> Depends on what I say, I suppose, yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, I'm currently a postdoctoral research associate at Bournemouth for four days a week. And then one day a week, I'm a partner in uh, a commercial company called LP Archaeology. Well, that's what I thought. That's why I was saying currently, because I was a, a bit unsure as to what, what that setup was. I mean, I'm a that, partner all five days of the week, but I only work one day a week. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Hopefully, we'll get we'll we'll come on to those last those two bits um, towards the end of our chat. But uh, as a regular listener to the podcast, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of how how this um, format goes. But I wonder if you could give us a brief synopsis of your career in ruins to date. So where you started. How you and then how you got to where you are now? Yeah, okay. Uh, so as I said, I grew up in in Arundel in West Sussex, <clears throat> and uh, I guess the first kind of way that I got interested in archaeology was visiting a couple of Roman villas. So there's Fishbourne Roman Palace up the road, and then uh, Bigner Roman Villa, and we used to go and visit those quite a lot. And then at secondary school, <clears throat> I was really really into um, into history. So I, I ended up doing, you know, A-level history and everything. Um, but I got to the end of it and I had to choose what to do at university. And to be honest, I chose archaeology because I got really bored of reading what other people had to say about stuff. And I thought, if I do archaeology, that's a super practical way of doing things. And, and then I'll be the person who digs it up and then I can have something to say about it. And of course, once I got to university, I realised that actually you spend most of your time reading about what other people say about it, which is totally <laughs> fine. You know, I, I kind of resolved myself to that and actually now quite enjoy it. And they often say a, a lot more interesting things than I say about it anyway. So, um, so I went to UCL, University College London, to the Institute of Archaeology there uh, and did an undergrad in um well, it's straight archaeology, but it was a it was a Bachelor of Science instead of a Bachelor of Arts. And we got to choose in the last year whether we wanted to do a BA or a BSc. Um, and I managed to 
get a BSc because I did my dissertation uh, looking at computer modelling of um, gazelle populations in the Levant. And that computer science part of it was enough to turn my BA into a BSc, apparently. So I'm definitely not a scientist, even though I have a Bachelor of Science. Um, but once I was there, I mean, basically, that's how I really got into, um, into the digital side of things, I guess. So I've got quite a big digital focus throughout the, the career. Um, so I started off by doing the website for the, for the Archaeological Society at the Institute. And of course, at that time, which was 98, you know, it was pretty kind of pretty rough and ready, flashing GIFs and, you know, <laughs> bold text with, with all sorts of crazy things going on. It wasn't my finest work, I'll be honest. Um, but that kind of got me into got me into figuring out how we might, you know, use computer techniques, not just to communicate archaeology, but also to... Um, to help us do work in the field as well as we can, basically. Um, and that's kind of where I've gone from, from there. Um, during my undergraduate, I met a chap called Guy Hunt, who was two years above me. Um, and he's now my business partner. So basically, when I graduated, just before, or just before I finished my final exams, Guy had been out in industry for a couple of years, and he... Uh, he gave me a call and said, do you want to come and come and work with me in a, in a very small archaeological consultancy? Um, so I said, yeah, all right, I'll see what, see what that's like, because I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do once I graduated. Um, so I went along and did some work experience with him for a, for a few months. And then basically we, we peeled off and started our own very small partnership. Uh, archaeological consultancy called LP Archaeology and we started it then with two people and we've now got mm, 60 employees or something today 20 years later mind you um, so I kind of started on that commercial track straight out of university purely by meeting someone you know at university basically with no training whatsoever in any kind of business or anything uh, but somehow we've managed to keep that going how did you find that? So, I mean, there's there's a very difference. There's a big difference there between, say, an undergraduate coming out of university without commercial experience, learning the ropes, going through joining a company such as your own or Wessex, something like that, and becoming an excavator, then a site supervisor, then ending up at the office doing project management and things like that. But to come out of your degree and effectively set up your own company whilst also doing all those bits as well presumably um must have been quite a steep learning curve yes there's this there's this line which in in the film flash gordon where uh, where brian blessed says flying blind on a rocket cycle essentially that's what i felt like coming out of university completely flying blind on a rocket cycle basically because we we sort of we started this thing and we had a few, we had a few um, clients. Essentially, the reason the company is called LP Archaeology was because it used to be part of a planning consultancy called Lawson Price. So that planning consultancy dealt with all sorts of, um, all sorts of different planning issues, you know, from transport to, to environment and, and archaeology. And that company was going bust. So 
guy managed to buy the archaeology section of Lawson Price for £50. So he bought the client list, he bought the, all of the computers and all of the old reports and everything um, for a very small amount of money. And that's kind of where we started. So we had a, we had a, a client list, which was basically house builders, pretty much. Um, and then we would literally put on our... We, we bought ourselves the most expensive suits we could buy, which weren't very expensive and looked probably very, very awful, bearing in mind this was the late 90s. And, uh, and basically got on trains and went to see all of these clients and attempted to convince them that we were the, we were the people that could solve their archaeological problems for them. And we did somehow and it was really just learning on the job basically and to be honest with you we still are 20 years later we're still just learning as we go along but um but yeah it's it was it was quite a wild ride to start with that's for sure so Derek, <laughs> sorry i was gonna lunge in there yeah <laughs> i mean that's a, as lauren said that's an amazing kind of leap out of university into not just the world of of archaeology but the world of business management and business ownership it's fantastic so but how how do you go from from there then a kind of a successful archaeological business to um sort of presumably phds postdocs and and that side of your life so there's you've kind of got these two two personalities going at the moment where did how did how did that second one emerge yeah so i it emerged alongside basically. So um, at the start, we were just a consultancy. So we didn't do any field work. All we did was prepare desk-based assessments, you know, reports where we go and um, you look at all of the different different. Uh, if someone wants to build a block of flats somewhere, basically, you go and look at the historic maps. You go and see the um, historic environment records. You basically gather all of the reports that have been written about that area, and combine them all together and produce a kind of predictive model, I guess, a written predictive model of, of what could be on that site. So we just did a lot of that work, which was really interesting because we went, uh, you know, around the country, we had all sorts of clients all over the place. So you learn an encyclopedic knowledge about the tiniest place. And it's really strange. <laughs> like 20 years later, I'll drive through like Litchit Matravers and go, oh my God, I, look, there's the Church of St. George or whatever. I know this place. Why do I know this place? And it's because I wrote a report on it, you know, 20 years ago or something. So that was really cool. It was a really interesting way of doing it. But for me, it was very formulaic. It was very much, okay, I'm just going to go and do this and do this and do this. And you tick all the boxes and you do learn a lot. And we've always tried to be a little more kind of bespoke than than other people. We'd always try and make the make the you know, satisfy the client in in um, all sorts of interesting ways rather than just producing the report and, you know, getting their planning permission. We tried to engage them in other ways as well. So we tried to make it more interesting, but I was really missing the, the, the academic side of it, I guess. Um, and at that time, I guess this was late, uh, early 2000s now, they were, <clears throat> we were looking at... Um, or geographic information systems or GIS were just suddenly sort of coming into into play. I mean, they've been around for years before that, but we were trying to figure out ways to put all of these historic maps together, put everything together to make really nice uh, figures and interpretive plans to help make our reports look good. 
and we realized that we had absolutely no idea what to do with it, basically. So I, um, I signed up to a master's course um, at UCL again uh, at the Institute, and it was a, an MSc in GIS and spatial analysis. So I did that part-time um, with, with uh, Mark Lake, who's definitely one of my amazing mentors there. And that was, that was just fantastic because um, Mark Lake and Andy Bevan at the Institute there, they, they, they really know their stuff. And, um, <clears throat> and Mark especially really taught me a lot about programming and using the command line and you know ripping the, ripping the black box of everything open basically and trying to figure out what the guts are like and how things work. And that has really set me in great stead for you know, what I've been doing for the last well, for the rest of my career up until now, basically, trying to get inside things and figure out how they work. Um, so that MSc then basically led on to a PhD, um, ostensibly full time, but basically I was doing it part time. Um, and uh, and yeah, and then I ended up ended up going on to a postdoc, basically. So uh, your what was what's what was your PhD uh, specifically looking at, and then what have you gone on to to do with your postdoc? So the PhD was was looking at the um, prehistoric environment of Bodmin Moor. So, um, and I suspect we'll come on to this a bit later, actually. But there's a for those of you who don't know, there was a <clears throat> very famous site called Lesgernic Hill, which was excavated by. Um, Sue Hamilton, Chris Tilley, and Barbara Bender, and it was basically the 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 start of um, the theoretical uh, school of thought of phenomenology. So they were very interested in how the landscape itself, um, how the, how people moving through that landscape responded to it, how that uh, how that framed the way they see their place in the world and everything. And I'm sure we can get into the, the pros and cons of phenomenal, phenomenology. Um, and we probably should because it's still a debate that's raging and raging. Um, but what I wanted to do, so the ph phenomenological way of looking at things is you essentially walk. I'm, I'm going to simplify it, but you essentially walk in a landscape and you sort of write down things that you notice and how things in the landscape affect how you're feeling and what they did at Les Gernick they they were trying to sort of put themselves back I suppose into the into the um, the Bronze Age and so they would sit in the uh, remains of um, roundhouses and look through the doorways for instance and then they would draw or they would describe what they can see of the modern landscape now through those doorways and then try and project back as to why those houses may have been oriented in those particular ways, whether they were looking at a certain hill or a certain set of stones or that kind of thing. Um, and then they would also, <clears throat> they would also um, cover stones in like cling film and paint them yellow, which sounds completely insane. Um, but again, it was about trying to pick out elements of the landscape that may or may not have been interesting and just trying to trying to explore how different parts of the landscape make you feel and how they affect your, your body and the way you move. Um, so it's very theoretical, 
And what I did during my PhD was try and take that theory and meld it with something called augmented reality and meld it via augmented reality with some computer modeling of the landscape so to try and do a kind of computer-based uh, or a computer-mediated phenomenology, essentially. So I recreated their experiments of looking through doorways or their experiments of highlighting different areas of the landscape. But I recreated them in a computer and then um, used augmented reality to sort of put the doorway in so you were looking through a real doorway out of the out of the houses. Um, it's a bit difficult to describe, but that's kind of how it, how it went together, basically. That's that's brilliant. That's fascinating. And um, yeah, I guess that computer modeling gave gave you elements that they didn't necessarily have in the field. Um, as you say, reconstructing the whole structure of the roundhouse rather than just putting an artificial door in the place where the, the door would have been. Yeah, so they walked out into the field with a <clears throat> with a door frame mm. that they created, bearing in mind it's half an hour walk from anywhere and you have to carry all your kit there, <laughs> all that kind of stuff, a bit of a nightmare. But the 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 big um the big criticism of phenomenology is that it that it's so subjective that it's not reproducible. Um <clears throat> because it's all obviously the whole point of it is that it's about your own personal experience. But I wanted to try and combine the reproducibility of computer-based experiments essentially, but use that in a phenomenological way. So you could so you could try and recreate the phenomenological experience but using exactly the same parameters every time for different people. Is there is there anyone working in in an area where the not necessarily from a objective perspective where people where you can kind of frame the same experience for multiple different people is there anyone or are you working in in kind of doing it the other way around where people's experiences and thoughts affect the 3d experience around them and then that can be used on other people or is that just insane and we're going to cut it out no this is this is really interesting actually and this is something that i've been kind of looking at a little bit during this during this postdoc actually so one of the one of the big things about 3D reconstructions is that they're always or they're very often finished right so you, so someone says I've made a 3D mm. reconstruction of whatever this iron age village say and then and then then that 3D reconstruction is completely unmoving like you don't it doesn't change you yeah. can't do anything you can move through it and everything you know you can walk through it but essentially it becomes a little like a like a modern reconstruction of an Iron Age village where someone spent ages to build the actual houses and then, okay, that, but, it, but it's kind of stuck. It's, it's stuck in aspic. And we've been, or I've been trying to explore this a little bit more where we can, where you have to try, you have to do something in order to experience this reconstruction. So here we go. Okay, I've been experimenting with devices that can read your brain waves, right? So um, <laughs> I knew you wanted me on for a reason. <laughs> we get all the headlines. <laughs> okay, go on. <laughs> so essentially, there's a, there's a few devices which can which can read the different the different waves that that come from your from you know your brain essentially, gamma waves and alpha waves and delta waves and all that kind of thing, and you can connect these particular readers to 
your computer and then and then you can monitor them so these are used in like neuroscience where they where you know they ask you a question and they see which part of your brain fires or how that affects your different different um, brain waves but we can also take this device and connect it to a to a gaming engine and then you can control things in the gaming engine with your brain now so this is could this is the this is the um this is the start of mind-controlled gaming, right? We're quite a long way off it. It's not very accurate at the moment. Um, <clears throat> so there's some examples of people building like a little tank game where you play against someone else in another room and, they're, and you're trying to think your tank to do certain things. It's kind of crazy. But what I've been trying to do is one of the big things about getting into a computer reconstruction is that it's it's almost, especially going into the past, it's almost like a kind of, um, like a like stepping through a portal or something. It's like a shamanic experience where you where you get yourself into a trance and then you step through into another world and you explore this other world, which doesn't really exist, right? It's a, it's a figment of our imagination, but it's something that may give you some ideas or may make you think about things in a different way. So I've been attempting to use this mind control device to um, monitor the, uh, the waves that are used when you're meditating. And so you get yourself into a certain meditative state in this game. And unless you're in that meditative state, you can't enter the reconstruction. So you have to completely settle your mind. You have to completely forget everything else and get like physically get ready to experience this reconstruction. The idea being that you're you're putting yourself in a certain state that you'll be able to, you know, it's almost like a waking dream or something. You'll start exploring this thing in a in a, in a very different way to just pressing a button. You're in your mouse. You know, you're 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 not really in the game. You've got to prepare yourself bodily and 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 in mind as well. It's kind of crazy, but you know, we'll see how we get on. <laughs> That's fascinating. Can I volunteer? To <laughs> yes, you can. No problem. <laughs> I've got an idea for a career in ruins on the roads. When social distancing isn't a thing anymore, um, we should be get, take the uh, take the task cam and go and uh, do some meditative um, work on Stu's uh, device and see how we see if we can get into the game or not. It's it's uh, it's all very experimental, and that's that's one of the reasons why why I, I you know have to have this dual personality of the commercial world and the academic world because I really enjoy this experimental stuff, and 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 having the having the freedom to to just play around with things and and you know see how you can see how you can change the way people think. I mean, not through mind control or anything, but more about more about. I don't want to just present someone with a finished reconstruction. I want to present people with a with a kind of heuristic tool that they can use to explore different interpretations and, and possibly things will suddenly be nudged into their head that they didn't think about before, basically. Mm. Uh, that's yeah, fantastic. And I, 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 what I like most about that is Lawrence seems to be now proposing that we have a career in ruins-based competitive meditative <laughs> I'm not competitive I'm going nowhere shut up oh well I think sorry I go ahead I was going to say that, that I mean, thank you for giving us that quick that overview um, and for, for, for sort of yeah such a varied and sort of different 
career to date and um, hopefully that'll be of interest and insightful for a number of people listening um, of all that variety of work and sort of situations whether it's commercial environment whether it's doing your own academic studies your postdocs um, we, I don't think we even touched on Waterloo uncovered either um, is there a bit of work you're particularly pleased with or proud of or that you, you, you've come away thinking I'm really glad I did that that worked as ex- exactly as I'd hoped I would say that actually probably LP Archaeology, the company, is something that I'm really, really proud of as a as a project. I realise that you probably want me to say some kind of archaeological no, project that no, I've done, but this is great. The way the way that, that the you know, we've we've always tried to run the company as a as a cooperative as well. So it's it's a partnership and you know the partners all have a share in the company and everything. It's always been been quite quite cooperative like that. And um yeah, and the fact that it's still going, and the fact that I'm still able to do things with it as well as as well as the academic side, I think that feeds back in quite a lot as well. Um, so yeah, actually, I think the company is something that I'm really, really proud of, and uh, yeah, hopefully we'll carry on going. But you know, it's difficult times at the moment. Yeah. Sure. How how have you found the the environment in the last two two months or so? Is is it? a dramatic effect on on the yeah commercial i mean work? it's it's rough like obviously when the lockdown started every single building site shut down and suddenly um you know we didn't have any work at all i mean all of the work was still on the books but all of the all of the projects had stopped so we couldn't get anyone out on site and i mean there's there's quite a lot that you can do um in commercial archaeology which isn't just digging so there's a lot of work to do with you know, post-excavation or preparing for, for new projects and everything. So we had we had work to keep people going, and that's fine. I mean, we did have to furlough quite a lot of the staff as well, um, although everyone's kind of ticking back on again now. Um, we've, we've got a few big infrastructure projects that we're working on. And so there's one thing that, that carries on going during a recession is you know, government funded infrastructure. So in that case, those projects are opening up again and and everything's going. So hopefully they'll they'll see us through. But it but it it, it has been um relatively stressful, let's put it like that. Mm. Yeah, well it's it's yeah, completely understandable. But um yeah, it's great that you're so proud of it and it's 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 gone so well. I think it's it's really in terms of the people we've chatted to on the podcast, it's a very unique yeah. perspective as mm. well, which is is so valuable. So moving on to the next step then, um, looking around at people you know, people you've worked with, things you've read, is there any project or, or thing or work or company that you're particularly envious of? Is this is this current work or um or anything? I, I can anything. Be any, any, anything mm-hmm. anywhere. We yeah, we're we're pretty <laughs> I think um I think to be honest that it is probably the work that Chris Tilley and Sue Hamilton and Barbara Bender did on Bodmin Moor. Um, I'm not saying necessarily I would like to be part of that project because I think the digging part of it was horrendous by the sound mm. of things. Um, I think it was a pretty rough time for everyone who was there. Bodmin Moor is, is pretty bleak and um, I think there were a few pretty rough summers when they were out there as well. But being part of that... Um, melting pot of ideas and they really did some interesting stuff they they did this great mixture of 
art and archaeology and you know um, music and all sorts of things that all came together on this one project and then they they sort of fully developed through this idea of phenomenology which started a big you know theoretical shift that we're still feeling now even though there's a lot of pushback and everything so I think that project I would very much have liked to have been part of that project maybe not digging in the trenches so much but, but it's, if I remember rightly with the uh, the book um, not so if the digging wasn't difficult then I think there was a certain individual taking toilet breaks in the corners of trenches as well yeah yeah you know that's that kind of thing but it's it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bleak place and so you know it's a long walk from Portaloo so I can kind of understand that but but no I think I think being 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 obviously because because having looked at it for my PhD, I you know I know that project quite well, and um, and so yeah, I think I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall at least there, just to, even just in the pub afterwards, to, mm -hmm. to to hear all of those thoughts going on and those new creations of how you do things. I think that would have been great. Yeah, I um I was fortunate enough to work with Sue on Easter Island. Um, have I mentioned I worked on? This is the first I've heard of it. <laughs> and we did spend a few days doing phenomenological work along the Moai Road. So um, we had Adam Stanford, who was a pro previous participant on the podcast, and he had he's got a big, or at the time he had a big tele that sort of telegraphic mast that would go up and he'd put his camera on and he had to put it to the height of a Moai and then walk along the route <laughs> of a, a known Moai road and they'd place themselves around different um, sites along that road and see how they experienced that and yeah interesting mindsets interesting take on their environments and just um, the imagination and the, the thought is brilliant yeah and I think I think the big the big thing there is not it's not the the answer like it's it's not going to give you answers but it will give you a different perspective and I think that is something that we really need to work on you know like we've got to just nudge ourselves around and think about things in different ways and ways that we may not have thought about things before and and just by doing crazy things like that or you know maybe not crazy but by doing different things like that it it does just knock you out of your kind of normal way of thinking and I think that's so important yeah so there's an element of 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 that that's been a theme throughout this this whole discussion that's archaeology can be so many different things to so many different people from so many different perspectives and being able to I think some of the phenomenological approaches particularly being able to kind of rid yourself of having to follow some objective testable hypothesis testing scientific approach and allowing people to experience the past in different ways and from different perspectives and in different styles is it's one of the most exciting things about both archaeology generally and where we are at the moment in terms of some of the technological advances, including mind control, not mind control. It is mind control. Frightening just saying Stu it out loud. He's a great um, bloke. <laughs> so, 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 so putting putting reading minds and mind control to one one side for now, um, let's go to the other side of scientific fact and think about time travel. Now, you're an avid listener to the show, Stu, so you know we were going to ask you this. Um, but as you know, and to all of our new listeners, Lawrence and I have a functioning time machine, which we've been perfecting over the last few seasons. Um, and we give all of our guests a return ticket to somewhere in the past. So where would you go, Stu? Oh, I have been thinking about this quite a bit. And... <sighs> So currently my postdoc is, is looking at, at Avebury, right? Prehistoric landscape of Avebury. And I'm trying to do some reconstructions of that. So I thought initially I would pop back there. But then I figured that 
that's probably quite a popular location. So hopefully someone else will do that in your fantastic time machine and maybe take some photos of it while they're at it. Um, and then I thought, okay, you know, one of my projects is excavating at the field, battlefield of Waterloo. So maybe I go back to the 18th of June, 1815. And then I thought, you know what? I don't want to land a time machine in the middle of a raging battle. And I'm pretty sure my stomach wouldn't get, wouldn't take it. Basically, mm. I think the <laughs> Napoleonic warfare was so horrendous. I don't think that I would be able to cope with it. So, so I threw that away. But then I, you know, I guess this is relevant to what we were talking about right at the top of the show, where one of the things that I've always been interested in is the birth of inequality, basically. So especially with places like Avebury, you know, there's this, there's this narrative that in the Neolithic, the monuments were, were kind of built as, as uh, community projects and all of these families came together and they all built these whatever causewayed enclosures or whatever it is. And it was all, it was all very kind of, you know, socialist and that kind of thing. And then, and then things start changing in the Bronze Age and the Iron Age where you get this, where you get these um, more sort of kingly roles and everything and everyone's kind of being told what to do all the time. And I'm sure that in the Neolithic it was probably like that as well, except we haven't really got very much evidence of it. So were these were these monuments actually being, you know, were these ditches being dug by slaves? I don't know, or concepts of slaves. So my problem with the time machine is I'm not exactly sure where or when we need to go, but I would really, really find it extremely interesting and extremely relevant to what's going on now with you know, Dominic Cummings with Brexit, with the, the, the race riots, all of this stuff, I would be very interested to find out where inequality started, where societies first became unequal in terms of somebody said, I want you to do that. The other person said, I don't want to do that. And then that person said, you have to do that because I'm telling you so, because of my position, because of my wealth, because of my whatever, my privilege. I don't know where that started. It could have been, you know, Neanderthals. I've no idea. So I need your time machine to find out where that started and to just observe that and see how did that really come about? How did we get into the position that we are now where the whole of society is so unequal? All of the problems that we have now are to do with inequality, whether that's to do with wealth, whether that's to do with the colour of your skin, all of that stuff. Somewhere that started... And I would like to see where that started and see how that started. No idea so if it's say, possible. <laughs> so, so what you're saying you need really is a, essentially a hop on, hop off ticket. And you can, if, in one step at a time, go further and further back to find this, this, this original point. Yeah, I mean, it must be somewhere, right? I, yeah. Or somewhen, I don't know. It's, uh, that's got to be one of the most interesting uses of the time machine and broadest uses of the time machine i think we've 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 sorry today no no i i think it's brilliant it's 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 different it's fascinating and it's a it's a really good one it, it makes me wonder and again this is uh, as i did earlier i forgot we were recording a podcast and i just wanted to chat to Stuart about stuff <laughs> but it makes me it makes me wonder that what what that seed for inequality was was it a single seed was it someone having something that someone else didn't have was it uh, a social power was it an economic power was it a physical power was it uh, an ownership power was it uh, what what was it power itself or was it subordination what what was the what was the seed 
that sowed that first exactly because it because it is the root of of uh, it's the root of everything you know that that seed is that is is where it all started and, and I'm where... no expert on this but is this not more 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 nature coming out so if you think about animal mm. and the animal kingdom and dominance and uh, whether it's the deer in the new forest and the stags having their harem or um, lions in the Serengeti, um, it's 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 born out of um, needing to be the the biggest and best because that's going to spread your your genes further. But there's I'm, a choice, right, Lawrence? Like there's a there's yeah. a choice there. Some like we are we are we are cognitive beings that can decide. I want to force my will upon this person, you know, like we can, we, we can, we can argue for and against that. So yes, of course, event, uh, you know, originally that presumably happened, but just because it's in our nature doesn't mean that we, that we have to yeah, we're, we're follow that, that tree, you know, and, yeah. but somebody decided they would or something decided they would. Hmm. Yeah. I think for so many, our social and cultural selves have, have overcome so many kind of natural biological things outside of hierarchy that I, I find it hard to to see a, a kind of a, a nature winning that argument for me culture society and nurture probably played a bigger role in that that single point but we're we're going down a very <laughs> yeah. uh, sorry i made it super heavy didn't i i'm really sorry <laughs> fascinating oh, but uh, we're already it's already already a very long episode unfortunately so i think we're gonna have to uh, we're gonna have to carry this conversation on uh, outside of the pod but um yeah that that's brilliant Stu. thank you for that um Stu, thank you so much for joining us for this uh this sort of freeway chat this week i do enjoy these ones a bit more than the slightly more structured ones we do and you've you've definitely been a fantastic participant absolute pleasure thank you for taking your time out the day i'm really happy Um, thank you a little bit of housekeeping from our end um as ever keep tuning in um and uh, following us on facebook instagram and twitter um and uh, a couple of thank yous to go out so first of all we had a new patreon um uh sort of uh donation from a chap called mark unfortunately mark i don't know your surname but if you message us uh, any more details you want us to share we'll definitely give you a full detail uh, detailed shout outs but in the meantime thank you very much for your support and um we've also specially created this special theme tune For um, for Karen Hackenson, Hack- <laughs> uh, who um, we mentioned in at the end of our first year celebration podcast, who, who'd been a avid supporter of our Patreon account, but she's um, she's front loaded this year's um, this year's support. So we are so very grateful to Karen and Karen. We have dropped you a message to invite you for a game of Monu Trumps to be included in the next podcast. So if you didn't get our message, then. Uh, you can email us on careerruins at gmail.com if you like the idea of that. And we'd love to have you on for an episode. Yeah, I mean, we we really, really appreciate your support through Patreon. Um, it's it's fair to say that um, we're not in the podcasting business 
for business. Um, Lawrence and I aren't getting rich out of this. Um, we do it for the love of it, really. Um, uh, we've never resented kind of chipping in a bit of cash to pay for Sound Guy Guy and, and hosting and stuff. But having people support us really does kind of help keep the podcast going. So thank you so much for that. Yeah, very much so. But in the meantime, everybody stay safe out there. Um, think about your half an hour drives, um, but only travel if you absolutely have to. But that does include checking your eyesight. Thank you.